I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be reading Leviticus chapters 24 and 25. We have some specifications in Leviticus chapter 24 with regard to the bread that's kept in the tabernacle. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. And thou shalt take fine flour, and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set in an order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute. So there in the holy place were three sacred objects. That was the altar of incense, the lamp, and the table of showbread. The priest had responsibilities to keep the lamp burning by renewing the supply of olive oil. The specifications for the oil for the lampstand were first seen back in Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. The table had to be restocked with bread once each week, twelve loaves. So what do we do with that week-old bread? Well, answer is, they eat it right there in the holy place before they leave. The bread goes in, but the bread doesn't come out. Good news for the priest, though. The text doesn't strictly say that they had to wait until the week was over before they ate the bread. It may be that they ate it a little at a time after the Sabbath was passed. The table of showbread was specified back in Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. Incidentally, this is the table from which David and his men feasted when we get over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And that was, of course, with the permission of the high priest Ahimelech. Now in verses 10 through 23, we find death for cursing. Verse 10. And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him into Moses. And his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward, that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin, and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well the stranger, as he that is born in the land when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. 
And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. And he that killeth a beast shall make it good, beast for beast. And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. He shall have one manner of law, as well for the stranger, as for one of your own country. For I am the Lord your God. And Moses spake to the children of Israel that they should bring forth him that had cursed out of the camp, and stone him with stones. And the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, here we see a man with a Hebrew mother and an Egyptian father who blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Okay, but that's just words, right? I mean, how severe can a punishment be for just uttering words? Well, they did what God told them to do in verse 14, death by stoning. It's notable in this chapter that we're given a narrative, unusual for Leviticus, which includes names and circumstances. While the name of the offender is not given, his mother's name, his Jewish mother's name, Shalomath, is given along with her father's name, Dibri, and uh, we see that he's the tribe affiliation of Dan. So why so much detail when the names of these individuals have no context outside of this passage? Well, the detail gives the decree some clout. We're not told that the man's Egyptian father was still living at the time. We don't know. We are left with the impression that the half-Egyptian son may not have been proud to be among the Hebrews. However, the precedent was clearly set at this point in time. Whether you love Jehovah or not as a foreigner among the Jews, you may not, absolutely may not, blaspheme the name of the God of the Hebrews. These four Hebrew letters for Jehovah, in English, Y-H-W-H, commonly referred to by the Hebrews as the Tetragrammaton, must not be spoken except with the utmost reverence. As a result, observant Jews through the ages, and even today, will not even utter the Tetragrammaton except in prayer. When speaking of Jehovah slash Yahweh, whichever you, you want to pronounce it, they commonly referred to him with the substitute Hebrew word, Adonai. In our English Bibles, Y-H-W-H, that's the transliteration of the Hebrew letters to English letters, is translated in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, while Adonai is translated with capital L, small o-r-d, with only the capital L at the beginning of the word being capitalized. In conversation, observant Jews today substitute Adonai for Yahweh. Because observant Jews for hundreds of years have refrained from speaking the name Yahweh, the exact pronunciation of God's name was actually lost. That's the reason some say Jehovah and some say Yahweh. Since vowels were not part of the Hebrew spelling in the beginning, either pronunciation could have been the way it was spoken. Well, that's except for the fact that in Hebrew, there really isn't a straight J sound. It's a, it's a Y sound instead of a J. But uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the pronunciation that people commonly give to the name for God. We aren't told exactly what the half-Egyptians said. But in light of this death sentence, you can see how that from this point forward, it just seemed best not to say the name of the Lord at all. Incidentally, you'll notice that today in English writings... 
observant Jews refrained from writing the word God at all when referring to Yahweh. Instead, they substitute it with G hyphen D. We also find this chapter some laws concerning payback. These laws are restated here as a principle that all of those who abide with the Hebrews, Jewish or not, are bound by Mosaic law. Abide with the Jews, keep their laws, including these following laws that we find in this passage. Verse 17, He that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. Secondly, we see that if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done so, shall it be done to him. That's in verse 19. And then finally, he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. That's in verse 21. Now, verse 22 says that the Hebrew and stranger will be treated just alike, based upon the same laws, unless otherwise specified. In just a few moments, when we get down to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, we'll see such an exception. This chapter concludes in verse 23 with the execution of the half-Egyptian blasphemer. In uh, Leviticus chapter 25, the first seven verses deal with the sabbatical year. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord of the harvest, thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed. For it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. Every seventh year, we see here that the land of Israel had to remain uncultivated. We also see that in Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. We see in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, we'll see that in tomorrow's reading, that God regarded the rest of the land to be very, very important. Whatever grew of itself during that year was not for the owner of the land, but for the poor, the stranger, and the roaming animals. And then some great news for Hebrew debtors. All debts, except those of foreigners, were to be forgiven. We also see that in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. However, there does not seem to be a regular observance of this year in biblical history. It appears to have been much neglected. As a matter of fact, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, we see the judgment of God in the Babylonian exile linked to this neglect. Those verses tie the neglect of the sabbatical year to the first Babylonian exile in 605 B.C. Now that's the one that included Daniel, by the way. Jeremiah prophesied seven years of exile to make up for the missed sabbatical years. Seven times 70 equals 490 years. So we see that first in Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12, and then confirmed again in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. Therefore, it would appear that Israel was being held accountable for missing 490 years of not observing the sabbatical year after they arrived into Canaan. However, based upon the math in Jeremiah's prophecy, one might deduct 
that they did in fact keep the Sabbath years for 300 or so years, somewhere between the time they moved into Canaan in 1400 B.C. or so, and the first deportation in 605 B.C. And then twice a year, we have the year of Jubilee, beginning with verse 8. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, and the day of the atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And he shall hollow the fiftieth day, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And he shall return every man into his possession, and he shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this jubilee ye shall return every man into his possession. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the fruits he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of years thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of the years thou shalt diminish the price of it. For according to the number of the years of the fruits doth he sell unto thee. Ye shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And if ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. Until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sowed forever, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sowed away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sowed. And if the man have gone to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof, and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of jubilee. And in the jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year may he redeem it. And if it be not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be established forever to him that bought it throughout his generations. It shall not go out in the jubilee. But the houses of the villages which have no wall around about them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the jubilee. Notwithstanding the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possession, may the Levites redeem at any time. And if a man purchase of the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall go out in the year of Jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possessions among the children of Israel. 
but the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. And if thy brother be waxen poor, and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him, or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. And if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor, and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant. But as an hired servant, and as a sojourner, he shall be with thee, and he shall serve thee until the year of Jubilee. And then shall he depart from thee, both he and his children with him, and shall return into his own family, and into the possession of his fathers shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondsmen. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear thy God. Both thy bondsmen and thy bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they begat in your land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall take them as an inheritance of your children after you, to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever, but over your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule one over another with rigor. And if a sojourner or a stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again, one of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem himself. And he shall reckon with him that bought him from the year that he was sold to him unto the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall be according to the number of years, according to the time of a hired servant shall it be with him. If there be yet many years behind, according to them, he shall give again the price of his redemption out of the money that he was bought for. And if there remain but few years unto the year of Jubilee, then he shall count with him, and according to his years shall he give him again the price of his redemption. And as a yearly hired servant shall he be with him, and the other shall not rule with rigor over him in thy sight. And if he be not redeemed in these years, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, both he and his children with him. For unto me the children of Israel are servants, they are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now this was the name of the great semi-centennial festival of the Hebrews. It lasted for only an entire year, but it was an entire year. It was like the sabbatical year with the same observances with regard to cultivating the land, but there was one more wrinkle to be noted in this year of Jubilee. All land property during that year reverted back to its original owner. We see that in verses 13 to 34, also specified in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 16 to 24. Moreover, all those who were slaves were set free. We see that in chapter 25, verses 39 to 54. And all debts were forgiven. 
Now, money lending wasn't very lucrative back in Israel. It wasn't a very good occupation at all. According to verse 37, you cannot even charge interest on money loaned to fellow Hebrews. And add to that the forgiveness of debt, and what's the point? Now, an interesting implication of the Jubilee year is the value of property leading up to those years. The closer you got, the less it was worth. That says so in the passage. Why? Well, it reverted back to the original owners of the Canaan occupation. So in reality, in God's economy, you never really bought the property itself, just the use of that property until the 50th year. It was a lease of property, really, in reality. We see in verse 30 that the provision, that this provision, didn't apply to property within a walled city. Kind of interesting there. That property in the year of Jubilee remained with the purchaser after the first year of purchase. She had a uh, one year to rescind the uh, purchase to buy it back, but after that it remained with the purchaser. That's in verse 29. Then we see an exemption from the exemption for city property owned by the Levites. The Levites were given property within certain cities in Canaan. When we get over to Joshua chapter 21, we'll see that. Regardless of whether or not it was a walled city, the Levite families got the property returned to them in the year of Jubilee. The return of the Jubilee year was to be proclaimed by a blast of trumpets which sounded throughout the land. There's no record in Scripture, actually, that they ever observed the year of Jubilee. But the command here is very, very clear. Since the 50th year always followed year 49, which was a sabbatical year, a two-year cessation of agricultural activity is intended, as we see in verses 20 and 21. As a matter of fact, those verses tell us that the seed sown in the sixth year will actually give them a yield for three years. Now, consider this. Consider the results of this year of Jubilee had they observed it. Number one, it would prevent the accumulation of land on the part of just a few people. Number two, it would render it impossible for anyone to be born to absolute poverty since everyone had his hereditary land. Number three, it would do away with Hebrew slavery with the Hebrew slave restored to the land his forefathers inherited. In the interim, Hebrews purchased as slaves were to be treated as hired servants, verse 40, rather than just simply as a slave. And number four, poor Israelites in the year of Jubilee, they got a fresh start. And number five, no farming for a whole year in the year of Jubilee. What do they do with their time, do you suppose? Now, non-Hebrews, well, they didn't get the freedom back as slaves in the year of Jubilee. We see that in verses 45 and 46. However, Hebrews sold into the servitude of non-Hebrews could be redeemed at any time, and they did automatically get their freedom at the year of Jubilee. We see in these verses that the year of Jubilee was to be considered in the purchase of a slave, being fully aware that Hebrew slaves would be released when that year of Jubilee rolled around. Laws regarding slaves are found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 11. Incidentally, there you'll find that only non-Hebrew slaves could ever become bond slaves or bond servants. Moreover, you'll notice the stipulation of verse 44 that these non-Hebrew slaves were comprised of non-Canaanites when it says, and I quote, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. God's intentions were that the Canaanites would be driven from the land, not enslaved. 
One more point of interest regarding these Levitical laws. Prior to the year of Jubilee, a near kinsman could buy back property that had been sold by a poor Hebrew, according to what we see here in verses 25 to 28. This is the law which underlies the whole story of Ruth and Boaz. As it turns out, Boaz was the near kinsman of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.